Good morning, church. It's good to be back with you. Uh, I felt really loved this morning. Uh, me and my wife were gone on vacation the last couple weeks to Texas and uh, had a nice, beautiful Christmas. It wasn't really a winter wonderland. It was 81 degrees, and we broke our AC. But uh, had a good Christmas and New Year, so it's a blessing to be back with you. It really is a privilege to be able to preach the Word of God to you this morning. So let's go to him in prayer before we dive in. Lord God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your generosity, and you are the giver of all good things. And Lord, you faithfully carried us through the last couple of years, God. Amidst a lot of hardship, amidst tragedy, crisis, Lord, you were still good to us. And we rejoice and we praise you. It's the least that we can do. And I pray, Lord, this morning that your word would really shape and mold our desires in our hearts, that we would be kingdom citizens living for you in our world. Thank you for who you are, for your goodness, and for this Bible that we are able to read from this morning. Please speak to us clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody is angry about something. I've heard it said we live in the age of rage. And I saw this illustrated this week in a pretty humorous way. I was reading an article online, and it talked about some of the things that prisoners are angry for, that they've filed lawsuits against. And I'm talking about atrocities here, like being served chunky peanut butter instead of smooth, like getting your mail delivered when you're napping, and probably the worst of all, being forced to listen to country music. It's like Willie Nelson and Garth Brooks are your bunkmates. You don't want that. But in all seriousness, there's thousands and thousands of complaints and lawsuits filed by prisoners every year. And that's just an example of the world that we live in, where outrage is the new black. But I don't need to tell you that. Every time you turn on the TV, no matter what channel you're on, Fox News, CNN, you see these people yelling at each other, mad about something. You flip on ESPN, you see the announcers yelling at each other. Is Aaron Rodgers the greatest quarterback of our generation? And they'll fight about it. Then you go on to the internet. And I don't even need to tell you what happens when you go onto the internet, to your email, to Facebook, to Twitter. We know that it's a toxic place of anger. And in fact, anger is so ubiquitous in our world that it's almost a social currency. Today, we can't tell what you're committed to or what you love by what you praise, by your affections. The real gauge of what you are committed to is what makes you angry. Because if you don't post it, if you don't say something about it, if you don't preach it, people will say, don't you care about this? Doesn't this make you upset? And so anger is everywhere. And when it's everywhere, it's easy to be a little dull and desensitized to it. I mean, we would say, well, anger isn't good. It's not good to want to whack my neighbor. It's not good to view that person as the enemy, but we're getting by. I mean, we're not in World War III, and I have medication I can take for my rising blood pressure. It's not the best, but we can make it through. 
But today, Jesus shows us that that's not true at all. In fact, God says anger is a big deal. And he says this because it not only affects our relationship with him, it can poison our relationships with each other in our homes, in our community, even here in our church. In fact, God takes anger so seriously, he says that if you're angry, you violated the commandment that says, thou shall not kill. Think about that. What? That sounds crazy. How is that fair? Well, we're going to look at it today in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Why is anger such a big deal to God, and what can we do about it? Why is it such a big deal? What can we do? So Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. And while you're looking that up, I'll mention to you, you know, sometimes you come to church and you hear sermons that aren't super applicable to you. I remember when I was 17 or 18, I was in a church once, and it was five keys to revitalize your marriage. And I was thinking, well, marriage sounds nice. I want a girlfriend. Girls are scary. I didn't even talk to them back then. And so to me, that sounded like an invitation to sleep. And as much as the pastor thought I'd remember that a decade later, I can't even remember basic things. So I just played on my phone or whatever. But that isn't this type of message today. No one can escape this. I don't, it doesn't matter if you just entered into junior high school or if you have the most seniority at your retirement home. Our world is set up to make you angry, to prod you, to poke you. It makes money off of your anger. So it's a lesson all of us need for this day and age that we live in. And so in Matthew chapter 5, we'll see a few things. We'll see the making of a murderer. We'll see the mark of a Christian. And we'll see what we can actually do about this. Making of a murderer, mark of a Christian, what we can do. So follow along with me as I read in verse 21. Matthew 5, 21 says this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you? Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Amen. So the first thing we see in the text is the making of a murderer, the main ingredient to a little homemade homicide. And so you'll remember that we are reading out of the greatest sermon ever given, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus gave this to show his followers what it meant to be his followers or to be a kingdom citizen of King Jesus. And one of the main ways he did this was he pointed to the religious elites and said, guess what? They got it wrong. 
eyes tell you something different. And before Christmas, we looked at what you could call the thesis of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, that whole Old Testament, it points to me. I am the one that it talked about. And because he is the one the Old Testament pointed towards, he has the authoritative teaching. He's not just a smart guy. He's not just a good rabbi. He is the authority on how the Old Testament applies to his followers. And he ended with a pretty radical statement in verse 20. He said that his followers' righteousness needed to exceed those religious elites, to exceed the Pharisees. And if you remember, I said, insert your Christian superhero there. Your righteousness must exceed Billy Graham's, must exceed Tim Tebow's, must exceed Johnny Erickson Tata. Fill in the blank. And that sounds crazy to us. How can we do that? And the heart of what Jesus was saying is, look, these religious leaders, they follow all the right rules. They do all the right things externally. But internally, they're a mess. Jesus wants followers who don't merely do the right things, do good, but who are good, who have the same desires that God has, whose affections and will mimics what God's are. And so today, and for the next couple of weeks, we'll see six topics where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. This is how it was taught to you. This is how you've lived this out in your culture. But I say to you, I, the authority, tell you this is how you truly live this out. And so today, obviously, we deal with anger. In verse 21, Jesus says, you've heard it was said of the, to those of old, you shall not murder straight from the Ten Commandments. And what happens if you do? Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. You have to go before a court. You might get your life taken from you. Murder is evil. Hopefully that's pretty self-explanatory and we don't need to go into a sermon on that. But Jesus takes it farther then in verse 22. He says, but I say to you, and in Greek that I is emphasized, I the authority say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So Jesus is telling his disciples, look, just because you haven't gone and committed homicide doesn't mean you fully lived this out. It's a lot fuller, it's a lot deeper than the way you've understood it. Murder is evil, but anger is also evil. And anger is also subject to judgment. Now, it's important here to understand something. Jesus isn't saying that anger and murder are the exact same thing. And this makes sense. That's common sense. Thinking about something, desiring it, is different from carrying it out. And on a really practical level, I'd rather have you be angry with me than murder me, right? This makes sense. But Jesus here is showing us how he wants his followers to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. Because they were okay. You know, they probably thought, like us, it's not ideal. But as long as you're not putting your hands on somebody, what can we do? You know, you can be angry about them. You can wish they suffer. You can daydream about whacking them like you're in the mafia. What can we do if that's in your heart? But as long as you don't do it, everything's okay. 
But Jesus says that's not the way it is. That's not good enough for God for you to merely restrain yourself, but have this in your heart. And he continues with two more examples of this. He says in the middle of verse 22, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And that insult is from the Aramaic word raka. And that word was founded um, from what it sounds like to clear spit from your throat, right? It's a graphic word, raka. It was an insult. It was telling someone they're shallow. They have no depth. They're like spit. They're a spithead, right? An insult to them. Having contempt for someone. He gives a third example. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, Jesus is giving us three examples, not three different actions, but three ways of looking at this thing called anger. And the end result of all of them is that, look, you're liable for punishment. God doesn't like this. This displeases him. And so this morning, Jesus is stepping on our toes. A lot of us would say, we're way better than those people that kill other people, than murderers. There's a huge distance between us and them. And Jesus says, oh, really? You think you're so good? You think you're so holy? Well, guess what? These people that commit murder, physically, what they do is they take life from someone. They don't view them as human anymore. They view them as a problem, as someone in their way. But when we have anger and this contempt that says someone's a raka, a piece of spit, when we insult others, we've taken the first step down that same path because we don't view them how God views them anymore. It's just a little turn in our heart, in our mind, that views this person as less than human. Again, bringing up that mafia analogy, you hear them all the time, we got a problem, take care of my problem. They're not saying take care of a person, the person has become a problem, a thing that gets in our way. And when we do that, we have the internal attitude that murder is the external manifestation of. So you might hear that, and that makes sense, but you might be saying, wait, pastor, didn't Jesus get angry? Didn't he go into the temple and flip some tables? Maybe there's some multi-level marketing scheme going on, and he said, get out. Isn't God angry? I mean, in the Old Testament, he does have some wrath. Didn't God get angry? It's true. So we need to make a clarification here. There's really two types of anger. There's righteous anger, and there's unrighteous anger. Righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Now, what's righteous anger? It's the feeling, it's the emotion, it's the courage that rails against sin in our world, rails against injustice, rebels against the rebellion in our world. Jesus displayed this. God displays this. What's interesting is Jesus, he got angry, but when he was brought before a court under false charges, when he was put under the death penalty for false charges, he didn't fight it. He said, Father, forgive them. He displayed this righteous anger. And so for Christians today, there should be some things 
that we get upset about, that we get angry about. If our heart is to mimic God's heart, we should be angry when our world isn't the way God designed it, when it isn't the way it was meant to be. We should be angry when we see a kid getting bullied in school. We should be angry when we see a husband mistreat his wife or kids or a wife mistreat her husband and kids. We should be angry when we see these examples of corporate greed taking advantage of others. We should be angry when our world celebrates things that God hates, like abortion. We should be angry when we see how corrupt politicians can become. We should be angry when we notice the sin in our own lives. But far more often, we display unrighteous anger. Unrighteous anger is the feeling or the emotion we get when someone has messed with number one. When someone has stepped on our pride or stepped on our ego. The audacity. Do they know who they're talking to? Do they know who they're messing with? You know, we might not say that out loud, but that's the feeling that we get inside. In 2013, there was a court case, and the headline read, Should Someone Blind Be Able to Carry a Loaded Weapon? And it was a pretty interesting case. There's actually a lot of nuance in it when you dig into it with the Second Amendment and concealed carry laws, and uh, it's pretty interesting. The court actually ruled in favor of the blind in this instance. But putting aside the nuance, not digging into all the details, if you were just to walk by uh, you know, your grocery store checkout line in Winco, you see that headline. If you were just to see that pop up really quickly on your screen on your computer, if you didn't think twice about it, it would seem like a no-brainer, like common sense. Of course, somebody that's blind shouldn't carry a weapon that can take life. And the court ruled with the blind, and so you'd think, well, there seems to be a gap between legal sense and common sense, again, without the nuance of the actual case. The reason I bring this up is because that same gap exists when it comes to anger. See, we say, well, we should be allowed to wield unrighteous anger, to use that as a driving force for bringing the right things to happen in our world, because God did, right? Shouldn't we be permitted? And sure, in the right hands, with the right training, with the right vision, anger can be wielded, righteous anger, to have good outcomes. But see, here's the problem for me. I don't see situations clearly very often. I don't have perfect vision. And if the Bible tells us that anger is as dangerous as it is, I need to be cautious when exercising that. In fact, a lot of times, I'll let the person who has perfect vision use it. Jesus. I can trust Jesus, but I've hurt myself and enough people to know I can't always trust myself. Now, you might hear that and think, okay, Ryan, well, my ego isn't as fragile as yours. I don't have the same pride problem. And it could be true. I mean, that could be true. But just think about it a little bit more because anger is insidious. This happens all the time. Sometimes there's a legitimate issue or a legitimate concern. And we actually do have clarity in those moments. We see the right for what it is and the wrong for what it is. And so we commit to seeing the right outcome or the right course of action occur. 
But in doing that, this is where it gets tricky, where it gets sticky. We have this righteous anger, right? But in that, we become so personally invested that it subtly starts to become unrighteous anger because, yeah, we might want to see the right outcome, but more and more, we want the personal satisfaction of winning, of beating those other people, those other people that have been so annoying and getting in our way. We don't want to seem weak. We want to seem strong. We don't want people to walk on us. That's not who I am. And all of a sudden, look out, anger has become unrighteous. And so anger is insidious. It's tricky. So we need to be careful. Jesus shows us that we need to take anger seriously. <coughs> Excuse me. Because the heart of the matter is that anger is the heart of the murderer. Unsettled anger is the making of a murderer. There's a TV show on Netflix with that title. And the whole concept of the show is what made a murderer? Was it their actions or the prison system? Well, Jesus shows us that the first step is an anger that dehumanizes, that sees somebody as less than an image bearer of God and more as a problem. So that's the making of a murderer. The second thing we see, though, is the mark of a Christian. The mark of a Christian. <coughs> Excuse me. The mark of the Christian. And so Jesus gives us two examples, two illustrations in the rest of our passage that really gives a cutting edge to what he's telling us here. The first is in verse 23, and it's talking about the context of worship. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Now stop for a minute. Look at that. This is so interesting. Jesus isn't speaking to the person who's angry. Who is he talking to? If you've caused anger in someone else. And so anger is such a big deal, we should be concerned about it in our lives, but also for the cause, for the inspiration of anger in others. In verse 24, he says, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So he doesn't even get into, is it uh, justified anger? Are you right or are you wrong? Only do it if they can make a great legal case against you. He doesn't even get into that. He says it's a big deal because when you come into church and worship God and thank him for his forgiveness, but then you don't show that forgiveness to others or you act in a way that makes people really angry with you outside of the walls of a church, it's a sham. It's hypocrisy. Go and take care of that pursue reconciliation. Verse 25, the illustration shifts to the courtroom. And Jesus actually gives some pretty good legal advice here. <laughs> he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. So it's better to settle out of court than in because as soon as your case gets before a judge, it has accelerated. It has gotten bigger. It's gotten worse in some cases. And so, again, this shows us that urgency is needed here. Verse 26 seems a little cryptic. It says, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Back then, if you owed a debt to someone, you were put in prison, and you weren't released until you paid that debt off. Well, that creates kind of a bad scenario because you can't work 
when you're in prison. So you better hope you have good friends or you have a stack of money somewhere because you're kind of stuck. It was a really hard circumstance. So the whole point of these illustrations is Jesus makes it clear the mark of a Christian is that we urgently pursue reconciliation. Urgently pursue reconciliation. Or another way of saying that is we need to deal with our anger before God deals with our anger. (laughs) We need to deal with our anger before God deals with our anger. Because not only, again, does it affect our relationship with him, it's displeasing to him, but it affects our relationship with other people. There's a weight we carry when we have unresolved anger in us. And in fact, sociologists have uh, noted this effect. At Erasmus University, they conducted a study, and they found out that when we say we have a weight on us with anger, it's more than just a metaphor. It's actually pretty literal. So what these sociologists did is they had two groups of people. They were all the same gender, and they were about the same weight. And you'll see why that matters in a minute here. They divided the groups into two, uh, two groups. The first group had to recall a situation where they became extremely angry, extremely upset, where they felt rage. And then they had to dwell on that and get ready for the experiment. The second group recalled and wrote down a situation where they experienced rage, but they had begun to process it. They had dealt with it. They worked through the complexity of all that. And then they had these two groups do a test. They, simple physical test, they did jump five times without bending their knees, and they recorded how high they jumped. The group that had worked through their anger jumped on average 11.8 inches. The group that hadn't dealt with their anger or worked through it jumped on average 8.5 inches. And so the leading researcher said this, a state of unresolved anger is like carrying a heavy burden, a burden we bring with us when we navigate the physical world. It's like the old saying goes, holding on to anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. And so anger is a big deal. It is something that we should urgently pursue reconciliation. But when thinking of this topic, I also want to speak to those of you that have been the victims of sin in our world. Of course, we all have, but some of us in a lot more visceral and egregious ways than others. And I would be very heartbroken and sad if you went away from this message and heard me say, just forget it, just get over it, just offer forgiveness, just do it. That's not what I mean to say. And for those of you, I want to say that if righteous anger is a feeling or an emotion of courage to fight injustice, to fight sin, to rebel against the rebellion of our world, then certain things should make us angry. And if you've been the victim of sin, if somebody's really harmed you, then you should be angry about that. That's not bad. That's a healthy emotion. But please hear me say this as well. If we hold on to righteous anger indefinitely, it will do so much harm. It's not healthy. It will poison and toxic your life. Not only will you have to deal with whatever event happened, but now this anger can control your thoughts, your outlook on life, even the decisions that you make. 
And it's not fair if something's been done to you, and it's not fair that you have to deal with this. But a heroic, courageous decision would be taking those steps to dealing with that anger, process through it. It might be quite a process. You may never forget, but it is possible to process through it and be in a healthy spot. It's where you don't have to relive it over and over and over and be reinfected with rage and mistrust. So God has grace for us because things in our lives do make us angry. And as we read earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, the product, a lot of this is the product of the Holy Spirit changing our desires in our hearts. But Jesus still calls us to try to live out that righteousness that he's given us, that greater righteousness. So what do we need to do? Jesus gives us a pretty practical lesson here on anger. What do we need to do? We need to lock away our anger. Lock away your anger. Ultimately, this question is, are you going to be a giver of life or a taker? I really hope that none of us take physical human life and commit murder. But many of us in our hearts will take life from others. We won't view them as the way God designed them to be, as image bearers of God. And so to help us with this, there's two things we really need to do. The first is to identify your anger. And you'll notice in your bulletin that I've provided some lines. And if you're online, again, the bulletin can be found on our website. But just take a moment and think, if there is someone that you're harboring unresolved anger against, you know, we know God is present. He speaks to us in his church. And so maybe God will bring to your mind someone that you have this anger towards. Maybe it's someone who's really deeply hurt you. It's complex. But just identifying if that is present is a key step. So think about that. Maybe you need more time and you can do this this afternoon as well. But just think if there's someone that you have this anger towards. And the second step of locking away our anger so we needed to deal with it. And there's three diagnostic questions to help you with that. The first question is you need to ask yourself, what do I believe, want, and fear that fuels my anger? What do I believe? What do I want? What do I fear that fuels my anger? And really, this is getting to the million-dollar question of why are you angry? Because it's always the thing behind the thing. It's not the disobedient child. It's not the big traffic jam. It's not the faux pas or the thing that didn't work out the way you wanted. There's other things at play. Because many times in those same circumstances, you could be happy. For example, let's say that you had a big business meeting with a potential client. You're going to get some serious commission on this thing. And you're driving down Eagle Road, and Eagle Road did what Eagle Road does. <laughs> there's a traffic jam. There's a wreck. You missed the meeting. You feel angry about that. But in that exact same circumstance, you could actually feel happy. What if you didn't put together a good enough pitch? If you didn't do your research, you'd be excited. You get more time to try to win over this client. So many times, anger isn't just the result of external circumstances. There's something inside us, a belief, a want, a fear that's driving it. And so in this instance of the traffic jam, maybe it's well, I really need that money. I feel more secure if I have more money. It makes me feel like I'm a provider as a man. That's part of how I identify. 
I need this money, the security that involved. Or I want to have a good reputation. I want my business partners to think that I actually show up when I say I'm going to show up and do what I say, and I don't want my boss to view me poorly. Something else is driving this. And that's a hard question. That can take some processing to go through. But the second question then is, what does, what about the God of all comfort? What is true about the God of all comfort? See, the Bible says that our God, the God we worship, he cares for us. He's the God of comfort. And so how can that answer some of those wants, beliefs, fears that are fueling this? So just for example, Psalm 23 is probably the most famous psalm. So while you're sitting there on Eagle Road, they're trying to pick apart all the wreckage there, you're thinking, the Lord is my shepherd. Right away, that's an amazing truth. God actually cares about you. He's not aloof. He's not distant, uninterested. Now, he's your shepherd. He cares about you. You know what else that implies? He'll take care of you. He'll provide for you. You know, money can come and go so easily. It's not as secure as we think, and God's given us the money that we have. And so when we latch too much of our security on that, we need to remember that God ultimately is the one who gives us the money that we have and who takes care of us. When we think about our reputation, ultimately, who are we before God is more important than who we are before man. Remembering our identity is how God says we are, not who men say we are. Or even you can jump a few verses down. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. God's with us. We might feel alone in our situation, but he is with us. So that's working through that second question. And then lastly, we say, well, what now? What do we need to do now? If it's more abstract, like a situation or a circumstance without a person involved, we can go before God and say, God, please change my heart and mind. Please help me to trust you more, believe you more, see your goodness more. If it's more in line with our text today where it's another human being, maybe we need to offer forgiveness. Maybe we need to ask for forgiveness. What's the first step in urgently pursuing that reconciliation, making amends? Maybe it's just a brief phone call. We need to be careful not to go all in. We have to be sensitive to our situation. And the reality is if you do this, if you take a step towards reconciliation, does that mean things are going to get better? No, there's no guarantee that things will just magically work out the way you want. Maybe you'll get the cold shoulder. Maybe someone else isn't ready for that. But let me tell you this, that when we obey God, when we do this, God gives us the strength. He gives us the courage. He might even give you the tough skin you need to be able to take the first steps to pursue that reconciliation because it's so important to deal with our anger and lock away our anger. There's a phrase from Ireland that's pretty strange. It's called chancing one's arm. And it has a pretty strange history to it as well. So in the 1500s, there was two Irish families that were in a big fight. Again, sounds like the beginning of a mafia movie. Two Irish families in a big fight. The Fitzgeralds on one side, the Butlers on the other. And they had a little civil dispute. It got a little more intense, and then it turned violent. And so the Butler family, they fled and they actually hid themselves in St. Patrick's Cathedral and bolted the door down. 
And as the Fitzgeralds were pursuing them and they got to the church and they were banging on the door and they were getting ready to fight, the leader of the family thought for a minute and said, this is dumb, this is stupid. We're two families from the same town. We worship the same God. We go to the same church. We have a lot in common. Why are we fighting each other? And so he got his comrades to stop, his family to stop. And he knocked on the door and he said, butlers, come out. Let's be at peace. This doesn't make sense. Now, if you were a butler, you're on the inside. You're thinking, yeah, okay, sure, Mr. Fitzgerald. He's trying to outwit us. He's trying to trap us. They're going to kill us. And so they stayed indoors. And seeing that he needed to do something, the leader of the Fitzgeralds did this famous act. He got his spear and he cut a hole into the door. You can actually see the door on the screen above. He cut a hole in the door and he said, butlers, we need to be at peace. Come out. And he put his hand, his arm, through the door. Now, the butler saw how serious this guy was. I mean, they could, you know, chop off his arm if they wanted to. He's willing to bet his arm on this. He's taking it seriously. And so they shook hands through the door. Then they opened the door, and the families were finally at peace. And thus the phrase was born, chancing your arm, taking a risk. But back then, it meant taking a risk at peace, at reconciliation. And so Christians... That is what we are called to do. We need to chance our arm when dealing with anger, when dealing with issues of reconciliation. And I don't want to be naive. I know these can be very complex. But Jesus makes it clear that unfettered sin, that unfettered anger that we just let boil over in our hearts is not good. That's violating that commandment thou shalt not kill, because we don't see someone for who they truly are. We don't see them as God sees them. And so I'd encourage you, don't take a laissez-faire attitude when it comes to anger. You'll see it everywhere in our world. People will try to make you upset. But remember what Jesus says, that it is not okay, and that the mark of Christians is that we urgently take that step to make amends, to pursue the reconciliation. Because when we do, it might not restore the relationship. It might not make everything right. But when we do that, we can experience the joy of not being trapped and being prisoners to the anger in our lives. We can be the salt and light that we learned about. We can be people who are living for God's kingdom here on earth. So chance your arm at anger and at reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and how practical it can be. And God, today we're challenged. It's a hard lesson. It can step on our toes. It can feel uncomfortable. But Lord, I pray that we remember your grace and that we'd act with courage. Thank you, God, for how you've loved us, for how you've forgiven us of our sins. Thank you, Lord that you are at work in our lives. And please help us to be more and more faithful followers of Jesus, faithful kingdom citizens living here right now. I pray that people would see our love. They would see that we are committed not to being angry, but to pursuing and dealing with anger and seeing reconciliation. In Jesus' name, amen.